The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio, coming to you live from the studios of WWDB here in Philadelphia, AM 860. And we're streaming live on WWDBAM.com, and you can reach us on Boomer Generation Radio at face uh, at gmail.com, and click on uh, Friend uh, Boomer Generation Radio on Facebook. And we are here uh, with Diane Moscow, uh, volunteer for the Senior Medicare Patrol for CARI. And uh, we're expecting a, a, a few other people to join us and welcome. And I'm going to be back with Diane and our sorted cast right after this word from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall. Founded on Quaker principles, Kendall provides independent living, assisted living, memory support, skilled nursing, and rehabilitation care for older adults in eight states. Whether you're looking for the intellectual and cultural stimulation of a college town or a big city, Kendall has a community for you. We are together transforming the experience of aging. To learn more, visit kendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to our first segment here on Boomer Generation Radio, uh, coming to you again from WWDB AM 860 here in Philly and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. Diane Mosco, uh, from Cary here in Philadelphia. First of all, Diane, um, educate us. What is Cary? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having Cary as a guest today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Cary, C-A-R-I-E, means Center for Advocacy for the Rights and Interests of the Elderly. And the mission of CARI is to improve the well-being, rights, and autonomy of older persons through advocacy, education, and action. Senior Medicare Patrol is actually just one of CARI's missions for the elderly. There are others as well. Okay. So we want to talk a little bit about, right away, the, the, the Senior Medicare Patrol, which sounds like a group of people running around in uniforms uh, patrolling Medicare. I doubt that that's what it is, although maybe not. I mean, it wh- certainly is not. And as a matter of fact, I want to educate um, you and our wonderful listening audience to the fact that an international publication, The Economist, published uh-huh. out of Great Britain, actually noted um, just last year, 2014, although they do call us old folk, and I'll forgive them for that. It's English. It's um, old folk. But the Medicare patrols holding local meetings to raise awareness of Medicare scams and actually um, considered to be, quote, the best weapon to fight fraud because it's using Medicare beneficiaries for peer education. Uh, and that's our main mission. So is the Medicare Patrol basically an educational tool of CARI, an educational wing of CARI? It is absolutely for the education of Medicare beneficiaries. It also, however, pays a very important role in taking reports of possible fraud against the Medicare program and making sure CARI would then make sure they go to the right parties, for example, the Department of Justice, the Office Inspector General. Oh, okay. So that's also um, a vital function of the Senior Medicare Patrol. We go to senior fairs. Um, we go to senior 
living centers, out into the communities. Um, we're available for people one-on-one. There is a carry line people can call. So what is? let's do that right away. What's, what's the carry line? Okay, the number that they would call, if, uh, I will give that number, and they will get a live person. It is 1-800-356-3606. And, and is there a website, too? Is there, a website? there is, absolutely, and that would be www.carup. C-A-R-I-E, I'm sorry, dot org, for carry.org, yes. Okay, and we, we also have uh, uh, calling in um, Rebecca Nurek, the senior uh, uh, advocate, senior Medicare patrol uh, person for carry. And, and, and Rebecca, are you on the line? Hello? Technology. And the program on your show today. Oh, there we are. They are. Rebecca, you're there. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? I, I, I can hear you. And, and Hal has just walked in from, from the trials and tribulations of Philadelphia area traffic, which we all know very, very well can be um, capricious at best. So, <laughs> so Rebecca, uh, um, so um, Diane was just outlining a little bit. You, you relate the senior Medicare patrol to the entire state of Pennsylvania. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, the Senior Medicare Patrol is a federal, uh, federally funded program. Every state has a, a Senior Medicare Patrol um, that uh, works to curb fraud and abuse um, in Medicare and Medicaid. And as Diane said, um, we do this through a peer education model. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We have um, Medicare beneficiaries who are trained on um, uh, they get a, a strong background in Medicare. They get uh, they understand how fraud um, can affect Medicare, and they take this message of uh, prevention out into the community to their peers. And it can be all sorts of different venues: uh, retiree groups, senior centers, libraries, houses of worship, and so on. And they they offer a very um, simple and uh, straightforward message about uh, protecting, uh, detecting fraud, uh, protecting your personal information, detecting problems, and how to report those problems. Um, so we are this program for the state of Pennsylvania. So, Hal, welcome. Welcome to uh, Boomer Generation Radio. And, and Thank you. Take a deep breath. And, uh, <laughs> it's, like, it, it's, an, it's an adventure in the morning in Philadelphia now. You're, you coordinate the volunteers, right? I uh, actually have a region that I cover, northeast Pennsylvania. but oh, The uh, whole entire state? You, uh, in the north, yeah, because we cover the state, I oh. have the northeast section, but we all work out of the offices. Uh, here in Philadelphia. Okay, so let's get the uh, carry is located here in, in Center City, Philadelphia. But from what we're what we're learning, it really covers the entire state of Pennsylvania. Correct. That, that's correct. Correct. So, so you you develop or work with volunteers, people like Diane. Yes, I work with volunteers. We do we train volunteers, uh, but at the same time, we also work at uh, addressing issues that are brought to our attention at carry, where there are have been situations where where people have been uh, involved, or not involved, but have become the uh, subject of some kind of scam or, or Medicare fraud. And we respond to that and assist them in directing in the correct direction so that we can get it resolved, uh, and also to uh, alert Medicare uh, when there are issues uh, that look like there could have been some abuse or Give fraud me, involved. So for, for, for all of you who are involved in this, um, Give me the top three scams, top three issues that 
older adults in the state of Pennsylvania, or I guess around the country, uh, should be aware of? And when you're talking about uh, the senior Medicare patrol program, what are the top three? I, I would hate to hesitate to say these are definitely the top three. I don't have that data personally. Oh, no, just your own your I own will sense. tell you, ambulance fraud is ambulance huge fraud. in the Philadelphia ambulance area. Ambulance fraud? The Philadelphia area is so bad for Medicare ambulance fraud that actually the government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has a moratorium on new ambulance providers. What does that mean, ambulance in. fraud? Well, it's things like a ambulance company deciding to coach a beneficiary to um, lie on this stretcher, and I will give you a comfortable ride in my ambulance rather than you having to find somebody to ride you in a car to an appointment. In other words, medically unnecessary use of ambulances, because certainly wow. there is legitimate, there are absolutely legitimate ambulance rides provided for, by the Medicare program, but a number, there has been a lot of local press coverage, the Philadelphia Inquirer has had ongoing press coverage of the many um, well, several, I should say, anyway. Uh, ambulance companies in the Philadelphia area where there have been indictments. There have actually been people wow. who have gone to jail. And um, actually for the maybe the first time ever, about a year ago, I see the Inquirer reported it November seventh, 2014. They actually also charged four ambulance users, meaning Medicare beneficiaries, that had decided to get into cahoots, I guess, with one of the local ambulance companies. So ambulance fraud is a huge issue. Um, another issue has been, and there was an instance that Carrie did get involved with, of a beneficiary reporting to the Senior Medicare Patrol, the SMP, that a company was coming around in a van, dropping off scooters to people, collecting their information, billing under their Medicare numbers, and then, of course, these folks sometimes didn't even get the scooters, and yet their Medicare account now says, Ripped oh, off. you have a scooter from the Medicare program. Right. Exactly, a major ripoff. That's, that's exactly the way to put it. So that would be another example. Um, there are also examples. In fact, I learned of um, a troubling thing myself when I went to do a presentation at a senior living facility where, because Medicare, to its credit, does so much now with preventive services, but the problem is that there was a group that decided, oh, we'll go into the senior living facilities and we'll do the annual wellness review for all these Medicare beneficiaries, which is a covered Medicare service. But the beneficiary's complaint then was that I don't know these people coming in and offering me this wellness check. They're not my doctors or my health care providers who know me and know my health history. So there's billing of the Medicare program, but it's not really providing quality services then to the Medicare beneficiaries. Rebecca, how how intense is on a local level and really on a national level uh, Medicare fraud? It's it's a it's a widespread problem. Um, the Office of Inspector General estimates that um, the system is affected uh, financially between 60 and 80 billion uh, annually. With a so B, that's, that's, that's with a B, right? With billion? a B, <laughs> yeah. 60, between 60 and 80 billion dollars each year. Um, and this, you know, this clearly has uh, a financial effect um, on the system as well as um, increases to costs for beneficiaries, out-of-pocket costs. Um, but what's also very important is uh, it, it's not there's not just the financial impact. This can have a, a quality of care impact on beneficiaries. People who are um, the uh, people who are 
have been scammed or they've been the subject of some kind of Medicare fraud, people can receive um, improper care, uh, low-level care. They could receive uh, services or medications that are not appropriate for them. Um, it can have uh, very serious effects um, in addition to, to the monies that are actually lost to the system and out of consumers' pockets. And what I, I would imagine that people um, don't realize is with that figure, we all pay for this, don't we? Absolutely. Everybody in the country pays for these frauds. That it's true. It's it's true, um, and it's uh, it, it's something that, it, as you said, it doesn't just happen on a local level. This happens everywhere. I'd like to also add to some of Diane's um, uh, descriptions of some of the, the the fraud that's happening at a local level. Something that we see both local and national. Um, some very common scams are people receiving telephone scams. Um, individuals calling beneficiaries. Um, claiming that they're from Medicare or they're from Social Security, saying that they just need to uh, they need to be sent a new card or there's some sort of new benefit that they need to be educated about, and they just need to confirm the beneficiary's identity and they try to solicit uh, their Medicare number, or birth dates, and you know any kind of personal information. And this can be extremely uh, dangerous. It doesn't sound like it would necessarily be uh, a huge problem, but it can lead to identity theft. Um, a scammer, once they have someone's Medicare number, can uh, use that number. They can sell it. Um, any sort of um, unethical provider can use that number and their birth date to charge for all sorts of services that the beneficiary never received. So there's uh, a financial impact, but there's also that beneficiary may be left with services on their record that they never received, and that can be dangerous. So I telephone scams I are, are a huge problem. I would imagine, though, that, that uh, these individuals obviously know what they're doing and will take advantage of somebody living by themselves, isolated, and they may pick up the phone and, and, and actually be so and I'm not making this up. I don't think I'm making this up. So grateful to have a talk, somebody to talk to, another human being to interact with. Mm-hmm. That, that Absolutely. Yeah, and that the yeah, scammer absolutely. may be able they, to say, and just saying right away, they may engage them in conversation. I would imagine that they would engage them in conversation and um, develop some sort of temporary relationship so that the, the, the beneficiary would be more likely to say, this is a nice person, you know, they're asking me about myself and my grandchildren and blah, 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 and before you know it, they've given up all their information. Am I totally off base? Oh no, 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 no. I, I think that that's. I think you're right on track. Um, there are a lot of, unfortunately, very isolated older adults um, who may not have family. Uh, they may not have a whole lot of socialization. They may be homebound. Um, the person on the line who's doing the calling may be very, very friendly and engaging. And this is somebody that. Um, the beneficiary, you know, feels comfortable talking mm-hmm. to that, you know, and they may keep them on the line for a long time and, and get information from them. The other thing is, they can go to the other end of the spectrum. They, the person calling, can be um, threatening. They can threaten to, they can say they're calling from Medicare and threaten to take away the person's benefits. Right. Um, it, so, it, you know, it, it, there's a, a range of emotions that they elicit from beneficiaries. Um, all in an effort to try to, uh, you know, solicit personal information. So before we take this little break from Kendall, let me ask you a question. Somebody suspects that they're either getting hustled or potentially a victim. Do they call that 800 number? 
Yes, they can absolutely call. Um, they can call Carrie. They can call the SMP program. Um, all of Carrie's services, including the SMP program, um, it's it's free. It's confidential, and we will try to help a person um, from start to finish with the with the problem that they're having. If somebody feels that they may have been a victim of one of these telephone calls, um, definitely call the Senior Medicare Patrol, and we'll we'll try to help. So eight hundred three five six thirty six zero six. It's eight hundred three five six. 3606, and we'll be back with uh, Hal and Diane and Rebecca right after this brief message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults, and it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approaches to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our first segment here at Boomer Generation Radio. Um, we are talking with a group of people from CARI. the Center for Advocacy for the Rights and Interests of the Elderly, specifically about... Um, the Senior Medicare Patrol, and we want to. I want to turn to Hal, uh, who uh, coordinates uh, some of the volunteers. Uh, Hal, uh, like Diane, is a volunteer. What is it? How, how does somebody volunteer? How does somebody get involved with Carry? And, and they may be, imagine, maybe some people who have been victims of uh, Medicare fraud, or they feel that their parents have been. They want to do something. Walk us very quickly through this process of how one gets to be a volunteer, and what and what does the volunteer do? Okay, uh, the the volunteers are mostly people who are, uh, since it's a really a peer counseling program, are uh, retired adults, not completely, but mostly retired adults who have uh, an interest in in this and have become aware of it either through a presentation that we, we make. We make presentations around the state on the SMP program, or they learn through other organizations such as RSVP, a prize which helps uh, uh, older adults select Medicare programs. Um, so we once we have a volunteer, there is an intensive, uh, fairly intensive uh, program that uh, generally takes two days of training, they they become quite uh, uh, knowledgeable in the Medicare program in general and the, and the variations on it, and also uh, uh, learn about the three areas that we try to help older adults distinguish between what is an error, what is abuse, and and then what is fraud, uh, so that they are given materials that they can then go out and make presentations as. Uh, Diane said to uh, older adult groups around the state, um, and and help them understand that they need to, you know, when you get your your statement and you look at it, it most people don't look at it, especially when you're on Medicare in a Medicare program where you may not be paying anything. Uh, it's just really not a statement. It's just a, a record of charges that have been given to Medicare and to tie-ins. And uh, so because you're not paying anything, you put it aside. Uh, we're trying to get them to understand that they need to look at these statements when they receive them and make sure that it's 
uh, actually something that has taken place, uh, the medications, the, the tests that have been given, um, are they accurate, and that it's okay for a uh, beneficiary to call up and say, hey, did this, you know, I don't understand what this is. Uh, and then if there's not satisfaction, if they have continued concerns, then they let us know. So helping the volunteers learn how to get that message across to older adults who, because of what you were saying before, are a vulnerable population to the kinds of scams and things that we're seeing in our society today uh, that uh, they can address them. And it's interesting, I get a number of the calls, and there's such um, a determination on the part of the person that's calling that they may have not cost them a thing, but they are so concerned that the system is being ripped off. And when you think about the numbers, you know, $60 billion of not pocket change and in a program that needs um, funding and and is going to affect what people are paying uh, for medical care going forward is uh, uh, very important. So getting them at a level of sophistication, helping them learn how to make a presentation, and then we also go out and we, we develop venues for them to speak and to approach the, the public on these issues. I would imagine as a result of this program, the 11th commandment will be thou shalt never give out your Medicare information Absolutely. to anybody except somebody that you either trust, know, or your, uh, your own personal medical provider. Absolutely. And when you think about it, we've been somewhat conditioned uh, that we know that our Social Security number and the Medicare number is the same with the letter, um, is something that we give for credit and all kinds of things. Though that's starting to change somewhat, and certainly giving out information over, over the phone to no. somebody that you really don't know is something that should not be done. Yeah, that, that, that's the 11th commandment with capital letters. Never, never divulge anything, uh, over the, over the phone, over the phone. Uh, uh, Diane, as a volunteer who's gone out and done, walk me through some, one, one, one of the more, uh, interesting experiences that you had, uh, as a volunteer going out to speak. What, can you, off the top of your head, give me one that, that would illustrate the necessity of people being really, really vigilant? Well, I think one of the, um, first of all, it is great to go out and to meet face-to-face with so many seniors, um, many of whom, you know, are very dynamic, bright people. But on the other hand, um, it's really interesting. Like one of the first things I say to an audience is, well, you know, how many people in this room are carrying around their Medicare card in their wallet? And a lot of hands go up. And frankly, one of our messages is that really shouldn't be the case. Um, When you think of the number of people who... You open your wallet at a store, somebody sees your number right there, or your wallet is picked, lost, you know, stolen, what have you. So one of our big messages always, like, leave your Medicare card in a safe place at home unless you absolutely must have it, like at a doctor's appointment. Get a SEPTA ID card. I hear a lot from seniors, but I won't get my free bus and subway rides. And we say, like, you can get a SEPTA ID card through your state legislature's office or SEPTA, and you do not have to carry around that Medicare card, which is how said Unfortunately, with your Social Security number on it is the gateway to all kinds of fraud, you know, with your bank accounts and everything else. But I always am impressed by the seniors who really start putting two and two together and start being more concerned. Oh, I had a phone call about taking this free hearing test, but they wanted my Medicare number so I could have this free hearing test. Or I went to a senior fair, and they offered me a bag of, like, all kinds of neat-looking stuff. But again, 
they wanted personal information. Um, we even kind of advised them, like, think twice at a senior fair about giving out your phone number, much less your Social Security or Medicare number. Do you really want to leave yourself open to people who may start calling you? Does that include emails, too? Because you'll go to one Ab- of these fairs yeah, and they'll say, well, give us your email so we right. can follow up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, you know, I ha- I'm glad you raised that because I think in the senior population, um, it's harder maybe to have the degree of sophistication about what can happen when you go online and messages that are really spam um, versus like, oh, I'll just open this, I'll click on that. Well, and, don't uh, click on anything. Right. Yeah, a lot of bad things can happen that way. Right, right. right. I, I, a lot of, you know, we're used to now getting uh, stuff from the Internet or allegedly from credit right. card companies or Internet providers, just we want to update your account or something right. like that. So this this is universal. And and the level, the level of this fraud and this level of abuse, um, I would imagine now with the boomers, burgeoning into Medicare um, and such an explosion of people applying that, um, Rebecca, that this, uh, that this situation is only going to grow. And so to that, let me ask you a question. This program, this, this senior uh, uh, Medicare program, uh, Patrol, is this just in Pensy? It's all over or is it all over the country? Every state has a similar program? No, every state has a similar program. Um, we are the, the senior Medicare patrol for the state of Pennsylvania. But if you live in um, West Virginia or, or New Jersey, try um, Jersey. call us. We'll, yeah, we, we would direct you to the senior Medicare patrol in New Jersey to, uh, to get assistance. So there's, there are 54 um, programs around the country in U.S. territories. So um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people working. Um, towards the mission of, of curbing fraud in uh, Medicare. So let's let's in the two or three minutes we have left of this segment. Somebody realizes they're a victim. They 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 think that something's going on. They pick up the phone and they'll call eight hundred three five six three six zero six. What happens then? They they talk to you and they say, I think I'm a I think I'm a victim of abuse or fraud or something's happened. Nothing. I don't understand this piece of paper that came to me. What happens then? Well, what we'll try to do is um, we'll talk with that person about what they're experiencing. Um, sometimes um, what we see are people who receive Medicare summary notices or they receive bills, and it looks like there's something on there that's not right. It could be something that was charged twice, uh, double billing for something. There could be charges for services that the beneficiary feels that they never received. Um, we'll start out by just trying to find out if this is an error because um, it's important to note um, to all the listeners that most providers are honest. Um, the, the physicians, the suppliers, they want the best for their patients. Uh, the purpose of the SMP program is to weed out those providers that are using um, Medicare, what we say is a pipeline to personal profit. So we'll try to help that person um, you know, to find out was this just an error, we'll empower them to call the provider and, and find out if it was just uh, a mistake because a lot of things are, are just keyed in by humans and people make mistakes. Um, and we'll assist that person in that process if it's necessary. If, it, if we find that um, we're really not able to get resolution to the problem and it looks like um, there's something more, uh, a little bit more devious going on, um, we will then submit um, the case for investigation um, to Medicare or the Office of Inspector General 
um, depending on you know what the what the beneficiary is showing us and whether it looks like there may be a, a pattern of uh, a billing problem going on, something like that. So we start out by trying to find out if it's an error. Okay. and uh, get to the point of possibly referring the case for investigation if necessary. So we have 30 seconds left uh, in this segment. How, uh, if you had one, you had a whole group of people sitting in front of you, uh, Hal and Diane, give me the one piece of, best piece of advice you can give this individual sitting in front of you right now about dealing with this issue. Go for it. Protect your identity. Keep, keep your, your confidential information confidential and do not give it out. Medicare uh, doesn't come, uh, doesn't call you on the phone and ask. They already have that information. There's no reason why they should have to ask you for it. So if somebody's asking, there's something potentially fishy. Diane, last word. And be very careful when it's free is usually not free. Yeah, there's no such thing as a free whatever. <laughs> right, right. Hal Bordy, Diane Moscow, and uh, Rebecca Newark, thank you very, very much from CARI, the Center for Advocacy for the Rights and Interests of the Elderly, 800-356-3606, and the website www.carie.org. Thank you very much. Lots of information, and um, good luck with your educational program. Very, very important. We're dealing with $60 billion of uh, fraud, abuse, uh, financial abuse in Medicare in the country. That's We are all paying for that. So thank you very much for being a guest here on the first segment of Thanks Boomer Generation. Yes, thank, thank you. you very good much. luck. Thank you very good much. Luck. Have thank a good you. holiday season. Uh, we want to bring you up to date in a um, another friend of the show, a good old friend of the Boomer Generation Radio, Peter Hecht and the Hecht Investment Group of Jannie Montgomery Scott. Uh, as you know, they provide concierge financial consulting and planning services. Uh, Peter and his team use a formal investment process as their foundation, and clients receive frequent communication as well as rapid response to all questions. And especially in this environment, there are very few needs greater than our own when it comes to personal financial planning. The Hecht Investment Group provides experience guidance as well as an efficient management process that is very important uh, in today's world. And additionally, Peter and his team can assist you in connecting to the investment banking department, which specializes in assisting middle market companies achieve their strategic goals. We invite you to contact the Hecht Investment Group toll-free. That number is 855-289-2168. That's 855-289-2168. Or visit the hechtinvestmentgroup.com. The Hecht Investment Group is also on Twitter. LinkedIn and Facebook, and Jenny Montgomery Scott is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, FINRA, and the SIPC. So what we're uh, doing here this month in this little bridge, our musical bridge between segment one and segment two, and Chaplain Stephen Roberts, who's going to be joining us for segment two, uh, taking advantage of the fact that this is the 100th anniversary of the birth of Frank Sinatra. It's also a very uh, strange confluence of events, uh, the anniversary, I think it's 30 years of um, the John Lennon's death. So here's a little, Frank, uh, a little bit of nostalgia from a classic uh, from our generation, actually from many generations, but enjoy it and happy birthday again. Rogers and Hart. This is perfect between you and me because each year when we come by, this applies to us. Love you too. It seems we stood and we talked just like this once before. 
We looked at each other in the same way then I can't remember where or when The clothes you're wearing are the clothes that you wore The smile you're smiling, you were smiling then I can't remember where when Some things that happen Happen for the first time Seem to be happening once again We have met once before And then we laughed a lot before Also loved a lot before But who knows where or when That happen for the first time seem to be happening once again. And so it seems that we have met once before, and then we laugh once. Also loved once before But who knows Who knows where Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome back to our second segment here of Boomer Generation Radio, uh, coming to you from WWDB here in Greater Philadelphia, AM860, and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. And again, you can reach us on Boomer Generation Radio at gmail.com or 
Uh, like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page, and we are very pleased to welcome to the microphones through the magic of technology from New York, I think, uh, Stefan Roberts. Uh, Stefan, are you there? I am, and I am in New York today. Hey, great, great, great. Well, welcome, Stefan. Very, very, very happy to have you on board. A chaplain, um, author, uh, editor of Professional Spiritual and Pastoral Care, a Practical Clergy Chaplain's Handbook, available from Skylight Paths, uh, probably also on Amazon, if I'm not Absolutely. Not, and also uh, Disaster Spiritual Care, Practical Clergy Responses, to community, regional, and national tragedy. Um, that's also Skylight Paths, uh, Stefan, that book? It is Skylight Paths as well. Well, welcome. We're, we want to talk a little bit about this growing phenomenon and um, of being a chaplain and what that means in today's world, a very changing world. Uh, your experience from post-9-11, and, uh, which I, I would imagine was the genesis of the disaster spiritual care volume. Actually, my work in disaster spiritual care preceded 9-11 by a couple of years. Oh, okay, good. And actually started with my own family experience of um, having gone through, um, we had close friends on a, a plane that crashed in Dallas. Oh, wow. And so we received amazing spiritual care. And when there began to develop a professional disaster spiritual care program, with American Red Cross, I was one of the first volunteers as a way to pay forward the spiritual care which I received and which actually allowed me to be the chaplain that I am. So that leads me into my very, very first question, and that is what what brought you to, you're an ordained clergy person, what brought you to choose chaplaincy as the vehicle to which uh, through which you uh, responded to your calling? I, as I always say to colleagues, I love being involved with people on a daily basis, and I love oftentimes the conversation around God, faith, um, making meaning in life. And congregational clergy don't get to daily with a multitude of people really have these in-depth conversations literally time after time after time. Um, and I found it spiritually invigorating to walk with people as they took the spiritual teachings from colleagues and then actually applied it when they suddenly found themselves confronting significant health challenges. So I was at that nexus of all those years of, uh, of, of having had their spiritual toolbox filled and suddenly They were looking how to use what was in their spiritual toolbox. And that's where I came in, and and it was very humbling. It still is a very humbling experience to work with people as they suddenly say, what is it I actually believe? What was it I taught? Now, what do I believe about God, higher power, creator? What is, how do I make meaning of this situation in which I suddenly find myself in, um, in relationship to all of my spiritual beliefs, the, this the, the making of meaning in the face of crisis or the in the face of illness, you deal with that every single day as a chaplain, especially in a hospital situation or hospice situation, uh, or in disaster. All of those, a key part of what we do is help people make their own meaning of the situation in which they find themselves in. 
And what we know is when people begin are able to to make meaning, and sometimes, by the way, the meaning is sometimes there is no meaning in what I'm going through in this suffering. But in that making meaning, it gives them spiritual strength and fortitude to be able to move forward. So to have in, in, in my tradition, we often say that there is, we understand a complete healing to have two components. There's a, there's a healing of the body, but there's a healing of the, the soul. Right. And often when there may be no healing of the body, there can be healing of the spirit in a way that brings real sense of, 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 um, of, of peace to the person we work with. Well, let me let me put you on the spot, and, and can you retrieve, I know this is you know right off the top of your head, but can you retrieve one instance where you can give us an illustration of someone who found that sense of completeness or wholeness or meaning of the spirit despite the fact that there was that the the prognosis was terminal or that it was major trauma absolutely it, 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 i think of one person where we spoke about you know um so I, this was a man in his i guess 40s or 50s um and the weekend before he died he was a musician he He'd never heard his stepfather, who helped raise him, sing. And the Friday, the Shabbat, right before his death, I had encouraged his father, his stepfather, for the very first time to sing a spiritual tune from his own tradition. And they bonded in a way where the patient said, oh, my God, this just means so much to me to have finally seen this side of you. And there was a meaning. And the meaning came also with his mother who was sitting in the room. They connected in this deeply spiritual way that said, even though I may be dying, that which has connected us really has connected us as he saw his stepfather in a new light in what his own music had meant for his stepfather. And that was part of the spiritual healing and wholeness. I saw in the patient a real sense of, 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 of peace. What the, the challenges of the chaplain, t- talk to me a little bit about how the chaplaincy profession uh, and, the, and the real professionalization of chaplains has changed in your career. Absolutely. To be a professional chaplain, which is I am, is very different than than what people may have thought it was 30 or 40 years ago. To become a, first of all, we have we like most professionals in healthcare um, have the opportunity to become board certified. So when someone goes and looks for a surgeon, they often say, "Is this surgeon board certified? Have they met the highest level within their own professional realm?" And in chaplaincy, we have board certification, which is limited to those with the highest training. And that training includes, after seminary, um, another full year of training. So after I was ordained, I then went and did a postgraduate year of additional training specifically in the world of chaplaincy. And then to become certified, in addition to the training, there are 29 competencies that one must be able to demonstrate, um, including something 
as being able to do a spiritual assessment of people across the spectrum. It's not just about leading services. It's about the ability to meet a person where they are, irrespective of my faith in their faith, or someone who has no faith, to be able to meet them where they are, to be able to assess a range of spiritual needs that they have and religious needs, and oftentimes they're different, and then that ability to create a pastoral plan to work with them on meeting their spiritual needs, and then at the end to be able to say, did I meet that pastoral plan? There is professional training that that um, is extensive, um, that covers a whole range of topics that we are expected to be able to have competencies in, such as ethics. When we go to board certification, there are three different areas of ethics that we must demonstrate competencies in. There is the ability to be able to demonstrate that we can work with a whole range of other professions besides ourselves. We must be able to demonstrate um, something like we can write a chart note. Mm -hmm. Because we work in healthcare, I'm expected to be able to go into a healthcare chart as a member of a professional team and to be able to, to, like any other member of a healthcare team, to chart note. Wow. So, so there. So, one of the tips is what you're saying is it, the 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 education to be a board certified chaplain is is intense, um, multifaceted, long, and a consumer, uh, sh- you know, has the right to say, uh, you know, to ask these questions as opposed to just somebody walking into a hospital room and saying hello and can we pray? Right. Okay. Absolutely. We're going to be back with uh, Chaplain Stephen Roberts in a moment talking about some of the other issues associated with this growing, uh, powerful profession of uh, chaplaincy in the United States and some of its and some of its ramifications. We'll be doing that right after this word from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to uh, this final part of our second segment of Boomer Generation Radio for today. We are coming to you again from WWDBAM860 here in Philly and streaming live on WWDBAM.com. We're speaking with Chaplain Stephen Roberts about this expanding uh, profession, a very valuable profession and calling called chaplaincy. And uh, Stephen, the... The opportunities for chaplaincy, I would imagine, from just knowing you and looking at your your work, uh, has really expanded way beyond just the hospital setting. Uh, could you just give us some ideas of different roles that chaplains are playing right now in our healthcare system? Absolutely. In addition to where we we call acute care medicine, which is the typical hospital one thinks about, chaplains also work in behavioral health, what we used to call psychiatric centers. Um, chaplains are involved in long-term care, what 
when, and and as you and I know, long-term care is a, is a is a range of areas. It's not just nursing any longer, nursing care, but um, that full spectrum of long-term care. We find chaplains in rehabilitation centers. We find chaplains in prisons. And as people begin to age, or that's the typical place we've seen chaplains, but now we've added an additional expertise. But in healthcare, we also find chaplains on in palliative care, not just meaning hospice, but in the full spectrum and range of palliative care. Um, hospice is, is part of the spectrum, but I've worked with chaplains who um, work in, a, in acute care and, and just specialize in, in, in palliative care, working with the teams that help people who are suffering from chronic um, pain and illness. Um, so there is a full area in healthcare in which chaplains work. The the typical stereotype, you know, is a chaplain walks in, deals with faith, I mean, their particular faith perspective, as you alluded to, uh, their training, your training deal allows you to develop the competencies, as you call it, with people who may not share your particular faith tradition, but walk them through. But one of the more interesting things, and you touched on it before the, the little break, how do you as a chaplain interface with somebody you walk in or you encounter them and they basically say chaplain i i I don't believe in anything you know i just have no faith in anything i i'm whatever do you just turn around and say well i wish you well and thank you very much or is that an opening for a different type of conversation it's an opening for the same type of conversation i have with each and every person Um, and i would normally say may i have a seat because there are that statement often means a range of different things. It, 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 it's an invitation to dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, what you didn't say is the person, you know, because it really is a, a question of how do we engage in dialogue because they didn't say, chaplain, goodbye. They said, something different Mm -hmm. and so then i begin to sit with them and 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 i'll do a spiritual history did they grow up with faith Mm -hmm. is what they're saying to me rather that they're angry with god i mean or they feel god's abandoned them or it may be something that says my life has been so horrific i can't believe in the god that i was taught about or it may be something that they say i am a devout um, atheist who doesn't believe in theism, mm-hmm. and then I be in, and if that's the case, that 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 atheist, then I say, tell me what brings meaning into your life. Help me better understand. Tell me about the family that you have, and and what what support do you get at a time like this? But the statement that you provided to me is really an opening to engage somebody in a serious conversation. You, you mentioned this, the idea of developing a spiritual history. Mo- most of us, when we go to a doc, um, we fill out all these forms and we provide a medical history, everything from you know our great-grandparents and whether they did this or whether they did that, and all of it's valuable. But do you, do you sense a, a desire, a need, or a growth in the development of a spiritual assessment tool that it's also part of a chart and, and also part of a person's 
uh, encounter with the medical system. Here's what I believe and here's why I believe it and here's how I want to be treated. Are you sensing that? And, and do such forms exist? Well, we do spiritual assessments and we do spiritual screening. Mm-hmm. So part of healthcare often is a, there, I like to divide at this point initially, we do religious screening and spiritual screening. The religious screening says if somebody is Roman Catholic and having spent um, much of my life in Philadelphia, I know the city is, has a large Roman Catholic community. Correct. So do they need, does somebody need um, religious, do they have specific religious needs? Um, do they want communion? Do they need anointing of the sick? Um, those are specific religious questions. Um, if somebody's Jewish, do they want Sabbath candles provided for them? Do they need kosher food? If somebody is out of the Islamic faith, do they do they want a Quran? Do they need halal food? So there is a religious assessment, which is fairly objective. And then there's a spiritual assessment. Um, and so often what we do is we train, because pastoral care staffs are very small, we work within a system to help others do an initial assessment that says, do we need to call the chaplain in? And so that spiritual assessment or that spiritual, um, the initial you know, questions are, are very few. But oftentimes it brings, we'll get a call from a nurse, we'll get a call from a social worker, we'll get a call from a doctor and say, this person can probably use your professional help. The uh, the role of the chaplaincy within the hospital situation, um, has it's it become... expensive. Is, it's it is very... Yeah, I, I not only work with the actual patient... Right. Um, Professional chaplains are expected to serve on ethic committees. Um, a number of my colleagues actually chair ethics committees within healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, we're expected to be involved with ethical consults. We work extensively with staff who have a range of spiritual needs. Um, I had training um, in disaster, and there's been times within the healthcare system that there's been. Um, I was involved in which um, somebody came in and attempted to kill one of our physicians in front of the patients and the staff. Mm -hmm. And part of my training was I worked with the social workers, and we worked with the staff to help them debrief. So I go into the kitchen. Chaplains work within the kitchens. They work within the sub-basements. We are one of those few departments in, in a healthcare system that are expected to work from the people who are, sit in the very top of the administration as the president all the way down to those who work in the sub-basement. We're expected to work with families. We're expected to work. I did a lot of work with students across the, the range, whether it was medical students, nursing students, social work students. Um, and, and a professional chaplain's role is not just at the bedside, but it's really within the whole healthcare system. And what happens, because we only have about uh, two minutes left to this segment, what happens if somebody... Where did the time go? Yeah, what, what, what happens if somebody who walks into a healthcare facility and there really is not an extensive... Because a lot of community hospitals, they may have a, a pastoral care person as opposed to a whole department uh, like some of the larger teaching hospitals. 
How do they make sure that their spiritual needs are taken care of? They ask. They ask? Um, the, 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 the Joint Commission, which oversees it's, it's, it's the administrative body of all hospitals, um, requires that all healthcare systems provide pastoral care. And if somebody isn't getting their need, then the hospital's in violation and, and potentially can risk losing their certification. The, so uh, but, Stefan, does that include like nursing homes and rehab centers um, or just hospitals? All of them are all of them are normatively governed by Joint Commission. Wow. So uh, we're speaking with Stefan Roberts, a chaplain, the editor of this very, very powerful book, uh, Professional Spiritual and Pastoral Care, a Practical Clergy and Chaplain's Handbook, as well as the editor of uh, Disaster Spiritual Care, Practical Clergy Responses to Community, Regional, and National Tragedy. It's um, Skylight Paths Press, probably available. It's on Amazon, right? You can you can Absolutely. go to the Great God Amazon and. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of the different uh, electronic vendors. So um, we have just a, about a minute left. Stefan, just just give us a piece of advice for somebody who may be knowing that they're going to be dealing with the healthcare system and is concerned uh, about having their spiritual needs. But they may not, as most people are, not members of a church or a mosque or a synagogue, but have these questions. Um, piece of advice, real fast. When they come into the healthcare system, ask to speak to a chaplain. Tell them they want to speak with a professional chaplain as they have spiritual needs. And this search for meaning is universal, correct? All professional chaplains who are board certified are all trained to work with people across the faith spectrum to help them make meaning of the situation. Chaplain Stefan Roberts, thank you very much, Stefan, for being with us here on Boomer Generation Radio. I wish you a good holiday season. Uh, Chag Sameach, you take care of yourself. To all of you, we'll see you same time next week, next Tuesday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern here on WWDB AM 860 for another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Stay safe, stay safe and be healthy. Bye-bye.